Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. How are you guys doing? Welcome over to the channel. This episode is sponsored by K12.com. There's still a bit to go over when it comes to Taiwan and China. We're going to be touching on that here for a little bit before getting into our usual Russia-Ukraine piece. If you guys are new to the channel... Do yourself a favor and hit that subscribe button. You want to miss out on the stuff we have coming. I have two guys inside of Ukraine right now filming documentaries. My main camera guy and a journalist I'd hired. They're both over there right now on the ground, on the front lines, filming stuff to share with you guys. So make sure to subscribe so you do not miss out. Now, I did read through a piece I want to discuss a little bit with you guys. The, the had multiple different ways that China could possibly try and take Taiwan. And I did find a few of them very plausible. One of the scenarios they're talking about is the fact that China could take Taiwan within 48 hours. Apparently, to do this, they're going to need sea and air, which is fairly, fairly calm. I mean, they, they, there's literally air. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, there's air. Of course, there's air. I mean, there's a sea between the island and China, and they would have to use an air assault element as well to actually complete this two-day invasion. This would actually make it to where America would not be able to respond. It would give them enough time. Now, the main goal for China would be to achieve the fact that they need to actually force the Taiwan leaders to accept rule from Beijing, which clearly isn't going to happen, but they would actually need them to try and avoid a war with the United States. Okay, they need to do this to try and avoid a war. Okay, they don't want to mess with America. That's very, it's very obvious. Now, one of the other ways this could actually end up going down is, is a blockade style in which they would actually tighten down and squeeze Taiwan, which is currently what they are running drills for right now as we speak. The island would be crippled financially, economically, and operationally if China were actually to extend this military exercise for even a longer period of time. China's actually already stated they would actually extend to this thing right now, another week. They just keep doing I think this actually might be something where they're going to have to get used to in the area. And I would assume they're going to continually do this farther and farther and farther. They're going to continue to push it farther to the right. But for the blockade to be successful, they would actually have to effectively cut off sea and air to halt the uh, valuable exports and to cut off help from the United States and Japan, which I do not see happening but it is a scenario to consider. These drills that China is currently running inside the sea is giving them an idea how, how they need to actually set up for a possible invasion would actually allow them to respond very quickly if America decided to come to Taiwan's aid. One of the other possibilities when it comes to scenarios would be that they're calling an island grab, which is something I actually spoke about here in previous episodes. It's what I think is actually most likely course of action. There's currently islands that sit less than six miles from the mainland of China. And I just realized I, I, I may have made that sound a little bit kind of strange, like these islands are going to grow legs and actually move. But, but either way, these islands, the ones that are just really close, they only have about 20,000 people or less to actually live on these islands. I, 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 see, I see this... Being an area where, where China is going to be testing the West here by securing these because there would be little to no fight in doing so. Like this would be the equivalent of what Putin did back in 2014 by taking Crimea from Ukraine. An air blitz. That's a different type. This would be another option here. Now this would be the ones I thought would be more feasible other than like the island we just talked about. But this, this would be the fact that if they wanted to hit them with a beach landing at some point, they would need to dump a bunch of ordnance on the island prior. Now, with the initial barrage, we wouldn't actually see China targeting any civilian areas or civilian locations for, the, for, that, for that matter. 
Now, because it, because it would be getting in hot water with the United States, and we would actually be forced to to fight then and enter and then crush China for like for what they've done. And China doesn't want that. Now, the last one, it's not the the most least probable. It's probably the least probably one I actually see happening. Uh, is an all-out offensive. Now, just because this would for sure lead to America getting involved, for sure, and it's something I could see China not really wanting to risk. Now, I, I will say, if China did decide to do this, it would be much more effective than what we've seen Russia do inside of Ukraine during the first 48 hours, because I do believe they're a better equipped military, but, but, but that being said, beach landings are very, very difficult. They're not easy. Like, they're very tough. Military analysis think that China would actually use a massive swarm of drones to actually take this island, along with up to a million soldiers, which would include, of course, ships and bombers, that type of stuff. Now, this would be basically, they would have to overpower and overwhelm the Taiwan uh, defense, like, inside the area, as quickly as they possibly could. China has also been boasting the fact that they've been rehearsing the fact that they're sinking these U.S. aircraft carriers by using hypersonic missiles as part of their massive war games that they're currently putting on. Now, these drills that they're currently doing, they're somewhat pointless to, to a certain extent. Let's be honest. If you think about it, not a single country has said that China could not take Taiwan if they wanted to. Like, they haven't. No one's ever said that. No one did. But in doing so, they would have to deal with America. And that's, not, that's really one of the only reasons for them to not attempt to do it now. Like, they can sink as many cardboard aircraft carriers as they would want, like, if they would like to. But I can assure you, it's a bit more, di it's a bit more different when these drills are now shooting back at you. You know what I mean? Like, it's, things, things seem to change a bit. Like, you know one of the ways these drills could be hurting China, by the way, is the fact that they're essentially giving the United States a free look into their capabilities. Like, let's also take note that the PLA, which is the People's Liberation Army, has no real-world real experience when it comes to fighting an actual war as of late. Like, all they've done are large choreographed demo, like domestic military exercises that are honestly like nothing more than a dog and pony show which are just as equivalent to like a high school musical or a high school play. Like the last time they have actually shot a round at an enemy that was willing to shoot back was back in the 80s. You know, like a little tissy fit they were having with Vietnam at the border. Like the more you put this thing into perspective, the more you realize that China actually needs some time to prepare and to put on these war games for their, it's actually for their sake. It's, it, they don't want to look incompetent to the population. I also don't want to, I also don't want to forget this, and I want to note this, that, that this, this entire conversation we're having right now started because of an 80-something-year-old lady, I think she's 82, visited an island and a country getting so mad that they're stomping their feet over it. So, there you go. Did you know that only 45% of high school students feel they are prepared for college and careers? Like today's sponsor, Stride Career Prep, is helping change that. Stride Career Prep lets students take charge of their education, their future, by combining real-world skills, training, and traditional academics. Students can earn college credit while in high school or get the training needed to land a job right after graduation. Stride Career Prep prepares your teen for in-demand careers in business, tech, health, science, criminal justice, and more. Students can take courses developed by industry professionals, prepare for certifications, get hands-on experience, network, and most importantly, gain the confidence to succeed. Stride Career Prep is backed by over 20 years, 20 years, yes, 20 years of experience in online learning. Take charge today at k12.com forward slash podcast. That is k12.com forward slash podcast for everyone that's on YouTube channel. Click the link at the very top of the description. Support these sponsors of this channel because they make these episodes possible and make it to where I can actually send men over to Ukraine to film stuff for you guys. So please support them. Check them out. 
I vouch for him. I wish I had this growing up. I wish I had this opportunity. Go to k12.com forward slash podcast. So the Biden administration has announced what is uh, actually included in this new $1 billion package that is heading over to Ukraine. They got additional ammunition for the high Mars, which shouldn't shock anybody. And is actually should be a bad thing for the Russian military on the ground. They got 75,000 more rounds of 155 millimeter artillery. Wow, they're burning through that. They're getting 20 new, 120, well, that doesn't make any sense. They're getting 20, 120 millimeter motor systems with 20,000 rounds to go along with it. They'll be getting some munitions for the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missiles, the NASMs, the Surface-to-Air Missile Systems. They're getting 1,000 Javelins and hundreds of AT-4s, 50 armored medical treatment vehicles, which are the M11, or excuse me, the M113s. I spoke about these the other day, and they're actually getting the ones that I told you guys would probably be a little bit more beneficial to the men on the ground. They're getting more Claymores, C4s, medical supplies. Now, the Biden administration has actually committed $9.8 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since he's taken office. If anybody was wondering, $9.8 billion now. Quite a bit. Russia has also notified the United States that it will be withdrawing its facilities under the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty, okay, from inspection activities. Now, I, I did have to look this up. What is actually under this thing is fairly important, to be, to be honest with you guys. The act is limiting all Russian-deployed ICBMs, like intercontinental range nuclear weapons, all of them, including like nuclear warheads that is loaded onto the ICBMs that can reach the United States in approximately 30 minutes. Like this is what they were inspecting. It also limits the, the amount of deployed Avon guards and under deployment, which are the Saramats and new ones, which are the two most operational available Russian uh, long range nuclear weapons that can reach the United States. Like it was supposed to be limiting these things to 700 deployed ICBMs, uh, stuff, the submarine launched ballistic missiles. SLBMs, and deployed heavy bombers. That's all it was going to have, 700. It also was going to limit them to 1,550 nuclear warheads and 800 deployed and non-deployed ICBM launchers. Like, if we know anything about Russia, it is not to trust them one bit. Russia's also apparently admitted to mining. Yes, mining a nuclear power plant. Like, and has threatened to actually blow this thing up if they do not control it. The Russian garrison commander who is now in control and said this, and I, I'm going to quote it verbatim, there will either be Russian land or a scorched desert. He went on to later say this as well. As you know, we have mined all the important facilities of the Zapsergia nuclear power plant, and we're not hiding it from anyone, the enemy. We warned them the enemy knows that the station will either be Russian or or no ones. We are prepared for the consequences of this step. And you, the liberating soldiers, must understand that we have no other choice. And if the toughest, toughest order comes, we must fulfill it with honor. Like, you guys know that this is the largest nuclear power generation facility in all of Europe. And they've mined it. The Russians. That, that doesn't even make any sense. Why would you? Like, this, this, this is this. Oh, God. What are we dealing with? What kind of individual, what kind of person are we dealing with over there? I don't get it. Anyway, the Pentagon has actually for the first time acknowledged the fact that they are sending an anti-radar system that has been uh, previously undisclosed. The, this anti-missile system has a range of around 30 miles and can actually be used to target Russian anti-aircraft radar systems such as the S-400, which we've seen them take out these in the past, but the Pentagon never said they were giving it to them. Like, this has been very difficult for the Ukrainian air... Um, Aircrafts actually maneuver freely throughout the country in certain type of areas because of the S 400s. Like these missiles can actually be used to target Russian counter battery radars as well, which the Russian forces, as we know, have been using them to target Ukrainian artillery units. Kind of a mouthful. 
But there you go. Now, one of the last pieces of news that we're going to talk about before moving on to the mapping uh, portion of this video is the fact that Russia has actually called for a state of emergency inside of Crimea. It seems that the MGM-140s, which is the Army Tactical Missile System, uh, HIMARS, essentially, a, a, a missile that can go inside the HIMARS, has actually been cited as, as possibly doing a little bit of damage to the Russian-held areas that are extremely deep behind enemy lines. It, it could have been done by saboteurs. No one's ever going to know. I don't know. I don't know entirely. No one knows. Russia doesn't want anybody to know the truth anyway. Like, they don't want anybody to know. Like, they're just saying it's an accident. All of a sudden, munitions just exploded randomly 200 kilometers deep. Like, just randomly exploded. Anyway, I've seen all the videos. I can't put them here on the YouTube because YouTube's kind of goofy when it comes to showing that kind of stuff. Can't show smoke. Don't know why. Doesn't really matter. Uh, this is also setting the precedent that America looks at Crimea as being part of Ukraine because if you guys do recall at the very beginning, they said that Ukraine could not use the high Mars to target anything inside of Russia, like Russia proper, the actual Russia, the state of the uh, country of Russia. Okay. This time they actually hit a Russian naval air station deep inside of Crimea at Saki. Okay. As of right now, it's known that at least two ammunition storage areas have been detonated, and they were massive. Just to give you an understanding of how deep within Russian-held territory we're talking about, like we're, it's 200 kilometers from the front line. 200 kilometers, which I think is roughly about 130-ish miles, I, I believe. Someone's going to comment on that. It's quick math. I think it's 130-ish miles. Anyway, yesterday there was actually another ammunition depot, a Russian one that was hit about roughly 150 kilometers from the front lines just outside of Kyrgyzstan. So they are still using the HIMARS and artillery systems to target and actually physically take out Russian ammunition depots inside the southern portion of Ukraine. Now, you guys got to remember, this area is very vast, very open. Okay, this is why you're not seeing a lot of movement down in Kyrgyzstan. This whole front line, it's why it's been so stagnant or stale. But here's a question the Russians should be actually asking themselves. If the Ukrainians are able to hit a base deep behind, like deep inside of enemy lines, like what, what's to say they aren't going to go after the Black Sea base inside of Sevastopol? Like an attack there would completely shift the balance of power inside the Black Sea itself and make every single piece of Russian equipment a target. Am I right? Just throwing it out there. Just going to go ahead and throw it out. We're going to move over to some mapping. Uh, I, I, I just I just wanted to throw that one out there for you all. It makes a little bit of sense, right? Right? All right. So let's move on to see what's going on throughout the country. Not a single bit of movement has really happened in, in and around Kharkiv. Okay. Or the Izium for that matter. Right. Seems the Russian offensive on the eastern side of Izium has actually stalled out a bit as well here recently. Now we know that there's been a little bit of movement on the southern side of Izium. Uh, Dolnia, which is about right here. And then you have Bordo Rodishine, Bordo Boho Rodishine, right there. Two very critical areas over the last uh, three to four days. Russian troops have attempted to fortify and build up their positions around the towns of Donia and Boho Rodijan as well, but weren't successful in doing so and were actually pushed even farther back. So this is the, the this is this is a very critical area. They also attempted to push south out of Izium, but were not successful in doing so either. Uh, either like they were trying to push south out of here, they got kicked back and had to turn back towards Izium. I have no idea what's going on inside of this area when it comes to Russia. Like Izium right now has stalled out so much for the Russians. It's it seems like it's almost a waste of their time thus far. They lost so many men, so much equipment inside of this area. Imagine the, the amount of river crossings they've done. That it just it's crazy to me the amount of money men. Just supply, like, everything. Waste of time that's happened inside of Izium so far. I don't know. Now, we're going to shift a little bit east here. So, there's Slovenask. We're shifting all the way over here. So, we have Bilovica, Servianka, Saversk, just north of Bakhmut. I'm going to tell you guys right now, there was a Russian element that attempted to seize a Ukrainian position just outside of Bilovica. 
was roughly about right here, somewhere in between the two towns. Uh, they were unsuccessful in doing so. Now, one of the areas of concern of this entire conflict right now is going to be Bakhmut. Like, literally, that entire southern area is very apparent. Let me shift down over here. So this area is the one I'm talking about. The Russians have gained a little bit of ground here, roughly right there. And the Ukrainians actually took back some right there. But other than that, the southern side of Bakhmut... It, it's pretty much in the Russians' hands. It's, it's very apparent what they're doing down there, by the way. Their, their goal is going to be taking that southern portion of Bakhmut and actually attacking these towns and shifting their element more southwest. Okay, Their main goal is going to be gaining access to the, the main route that comes north. It goes north and south out of Bakhmut, and it's called the T0513. So this main route right here. They have been trying to shift their elements this way. They attempted to push an element between Zatsev and Kodoma, but did not get anywhere, did not pan out too well for them, and they were actually forced to retreat. They then attempted to take Kodoma from two separate sides, but even this time they were repelled. And it seems the Russians have actually shifted all their focus, like I've said before, inside of this area because they need these routes to link up with the other element on the backside of Bakhmut because they need to gain access to Seversk. They need access to the high ground for everybody that's new. We had people come through this way. They tried to go through this way. They tried to take Kodoma. Didn't pan out. So this whole front line over here has not changed. The main routes I'm talking about, we got these black lines, okay? Take note of those black lines. For everybody's listening, we're, we're, we're talking about the northern side of Bakhmut right here. I've said it a million times. I feel like I'm just repeating myself. This is all high ground right here. I should probably just put it on this map. Probably should annotate it. I haven't said that in a while. Anyway, we're going to shift here. Uh, shift out of here, excuse me. We're going to move more south out of Bakhmut. It seems that the fighting inside of these settlements on uh, outside of Avika have actually increased over the last day or so. The Russians have been attempting to take a few Ukrainian positions to the northern side of Avika, but they were unsuccessful. So this whole area right through here. Once again, they're applying a lot of pressure to the Ukrainians. Now, fierce fighting continues in Pieski, uh, which is another indication that the town isn't under Russian control, and the Ukrainians clearly have a formidable force inside the area, and they're able to actually hold off the current Russian offensive that has actually started a few days ago. Pisky, I told you guys, I think it was actually two episodes ago, the Russians claimed to have it. I told you guys the following episode. It is very apparent that they don't, and now it's very clear that it's still very heavily contested. Now we're going to shift over to, to, to Kyrgyzstan which it's not a lot of mapping to do with it, but Ukrainians have still been doing a lot of work with inside of Kyrgyzstan itself and not much movement on the front lines anywhere. All along the southern side, I told you guys many of times, remember it's very flat, open terrain, tough. Like these areas, they're just it's just tough to actually maneuver on foot. Also, one of the reasons why it's going to be so difficult for them to defend uh, at the beginning of the war was the reason why it was so flat. They lost it so quick. They held Mikhailov. They pushed him back. Ukrainian soft units have continued to actually identify targets within the city itself and actually re-engage targets that they've actually hit in previous weeks. Now, the previous targets I am talking about are this one right here. As we know, the E95, there's a main bridge right there. There's another one right here as well. And then up here in the northwest side, there is another bridge. Okay. You guys remember the video I showed you guys of the Russians transporting supplies next to a blown up bridge? Those are the ones I'm talking about. They've been effectively targeting that area once again with artillery. And not only that, they've been targeting the bridge just northeast of there. North, northeast. Of, wow. Find your words. Northeast of there as well. One of the areas that was previously hit. Like, seems like they just want to make sure the job is actually done. And the Russians feel a bit more trapped in the city of Kyrgyzstan itself. Because without these bridges, they can't get back across. They can't get supplies across. Ukrainian artillery has also been targeting munitions at the Kyrgyzstan airport once again. And another strike hit a facility down in Olitsky which is just south of here. So Olotsky right here, just south of Kyrgyzstan. So that, that's the thing. So the, the Russians down in this area, 
aren't able to effectively take out the high Mars. They haven't taken out one yet. They thought they did, but as I've showed you guys, it's not in the second story window of a, of a building. That's not where the high Mars just hang out. This whole area is fair game. And it seems like they're just going after all the logisticals. And the thing we got coming up, think about it. This is the long game. This is, this is the long game. If you think about it, the attrition rate down in this area is actually fairly sustainable. When it comes to the Ukrainian side of things, they're not losing a lot of men in this area compared to the Eastern side of the country. They're not losing a lot of tanks and, and, and big heavy equipment. They're just literally taking out all the logistics that the Russians have. What is coming up as well? Winter. I know all the men there are really used to winter. I know that's what a lot of people are going to say. Yeah, I get it. Winter's coming. You guys got to realize they're far from home. Their morale is very low. The logistical supplies are getting targeted almost every single day. How do you think it's going to be when winter comes? The rainy season. It's going to be very difficult. Keep that in mind as we get through here and progress through the months because this stuff's not going to slow down. I hope you guys did enjoy this video. I'll see you guys tomorrow or the next day. Hi. I love you guys. I'm out.